Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 26. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, and I am joined by Nassim Jamnia, one of the members of our Igor. Nassim, hello. Hi. How is it going? Pretty solid. You know, That's I good. Spent all day staring at LinkedIn. So nice. I know yeah. that game. Yeah. I, you know, I did. I didn't. This talk about it, an interview going its own way. Now we're talking about LinkedIn. We're a <laughs> we're a LinkedIn show now, folks. When I so I went in for like my I don't know maybe like my fourth year, let's say during my program. I thought, okay, I need to start looking for jobs. Let me go talk to the career you know services person at our school. Yeah. And so I went in and like LinkedIn forever has been like, you're a LinkedIn rock star. You have a photo that's like not showing you playing beer pong. And like you, you have a, a, you actually have like stuff on your page. You're doing pretty great. And I go and she's like, you have a terrible LinkedIn page. Like, no. <laughs> so I need, I needed to like, she, you know, she was like, you have to write a really good, a really good about me section that'll draw people in, but then also give them lots of info that's professional, but not too professional. You want to seem approachable and cool. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> this is, this is an, an impossible task. Anyways, all right. Nassim is, like I said, one of the members of the Igor. Nassim has yeah. a Patreon page right now and a weekly newsletter. So if you guys are into, uh, you know, What's being said on this episode, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I started the newsletter about a year ago kind of as a – I don't. I just want to, I don't know, write something consistent. Um, and it's kind of evolved with time, and a lot of it focuses on just, like, growing pains, becoming, like, an adult in this specific culture and society. And so, like, last week was about Charlottesville because, of course, but, like – a couple or maybe a couple months ago, I don't know, is about like fat antagonism and fat phobia. And I've written a plenty about mental health and stuff like that. So um, yeah, they're called the Tuesday telegrams. They're at tinyletter.com slash Nassim. Very easy to remember. So sign up, come join us. Yay. That is easy to remember, man. Yeah. You like sniped that, that, uh, that, that <laughs> tiny URL with tinypage.nassim. That's, like, pretty good. Every time I try to get, like, www.chris.com, it's like, you know, <laughs> if you, do you want this domain? Send a million dollars to, yeah. you know, whoever. It's the, it's the perks of having a unique name. That's true. That's so. pretty great. Pretty great. All right. Yay. Let's get into this episode and roll the intro music. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 26, Mental Health Myths, part 2. So, Nassim, we're here to talk so, today. It's going to be great. It's going to be really good. Yeah, I'm excited. Awesome. First <laughs> off, so uh, maybe, I don't know, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about how I like... Asked if you wanted to come research for us. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a kind of a, a random thing, I guess. So I met, or I should say, internet met TJ Cunahan from the Pints and Puzzles podcast um, through another podcast called Off Duty, and you know he ha so so you guys did a joint episode. Yeah. And I listened to it, and I was like, wow, this is really great. And then I, I think I, like, tweeted at you and was just like, hey, send me a sticker or something like that. 
Um, and then I said, like, if you guys ever need to cover why vaccines are great and, like, don't cause autism, contact me. I've written a gazillion <laughs> papers about it. And you were like, hey, you want to join the team? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty great. So, honestly, I, I joke about this all the time, but it's pretty much true. Without TJ, this show would never have, like, happened because – He's a great okay, human. Re- research team, basically, is, like, like, a lot of people we picked up either just from, like, whatever, me – having a billion undergrads working for us. Right. But also, like, people <laughs> hearing about the show from TJ or him just being super, like, super helpful. And on top of that, too, this microphone I'm recording on, he he gave He sent me. that to you, right? That's what I thought. Yeah, I remember him complaining about the sound quality. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, he was like, your show doesn't sound good. Here's a microphone that makes it, that'll make it sound better. So thank you, TJ. If you guys aren't listening to Pints and Puzzles, please do, please do so. He'll be starting up again soon. And we're actually working on another double, like a special smorgasbord episode, whatever. Cool. I just totally butchered the word smorgasbord. Well, and I decided I wanted another go at it, which is rough. Cool. <laughs> All cool. right. So this episode, we're going to be talking about, again, mental health myths and part two actually part two and actually you brought up something really interesting which was the um the horrible attack in charlottesville it was interesting so usually when those events happen this is not in our on our uh list of things we're going to talk about but it's too late now (laughs) we've done it oops (laughs) not sorry not sorry the charlotte so the attack in charlottesville one thing i found really interesting was that the because it didn't involve a gun, the first thing that people jumped to wasn't that this person must have been like some escaped mental patient or something. Do you know oh, what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, was, yeah totally. Like, I I was struck by that on the day on the day that it happened. You know, I mean, you know, obviously riveted following the coverage of this horrible rally and whatever and you know what you know all just all the the roughness and the badness that goes along yeah. with the day itself and then on top of that too when there was actually like you know a, a terrorist attack a domestic terrorist attack it was kind of the first thing i thought was i wonder how they're going to like first off the i mean terribly the first thing i thought was you know oh god i wonder what side this guy was on do you know oh, what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I because it. it's it's a very I mean it was politically charged atmosphere. It's a very political thing, and then on top of that too, it was like, oh no, I I wonder how this will be framed in the media as you know either. I mean I don't know. It's always an interesting conversation we have after these events that we kind of it kind of lays bare all of our prejudices as a society. You know. Yeah, but I think you know I think your point about like. <laughs> I'm just thinking of I hadn't re, I hadn't thought about him not being labeled as mentally ill. And I feel like that's usually the conclusion people or I should say the media jumps to when it's you know it's like a white person. Sorry. I'm, no, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm, no. I'm like super liberal but like um yeah, so I I I mean but but what are the words that I'm trying to say? Um, <laughs> but it doesn't. So, 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 but that doesn't change. Like the way that we're talking about these, like white people who, who, you know, they, they're, they're troubled, or you know, the, their mother said they were super nice, or like bullshit like that. But we always talk about it the same way, and nothing happens afterwards. Yeah, no, it do- it doesn't. And I think, I actually think so. I think what's really interesting. That actually I hadn't really considered until you said it just now, is 
His the, in conversation, great. It's so good. It's so, that's, this is the thing, <laughs> listeners. Like, if you don't agree, I mean, li- I know, I know for a fact that there are a number of listeners who don't agree with us on everything, and that's that's fine. You know what I mean? Um, but I think, like, I, I actually really like Katie. Thinks I'm Katie. Katie doesn't understand why I listen to to this guy, but I really like this radio host in Boston where I used to live named Dan Ray. Because I disagree with him on everything, but I find him so charming and nice that, like, I listen to him and I'm like, oh, Dan, you're just, <laughs> you're just wrong. That, you know? That's like, how I, like, that's how I feel about the off-duty gang. Like, I went on, yeah. I've met them, and they're amazing. <laughs> I, like, I love them, but I'm, every time they say something, I'm like, oh, you guys, like, yeah. you don't understand how racism <laughs> in this country works. You know, like, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's, like it's patronizing really, shit like that. I know, but, it, you know, it's, it's a really interesting, anyways, I hope that if you're listening to this and you don't agree with us, at least you can listen and, and think and you know, have a have a conversation at home then with someone. But yes, um, what what I was gonna say before again that tangent was <laughs> the idea that it's almost a way of so um, one of the one of the first uses of the mental health defense in like a major trial was for John John Wayne Gacy, who was a serial killer, mm. and he used it almost as a way to um remove blame from himself right yeah and it was a very exploitive use of it in that instance um you know i mean if there's a really good book that was written by his lawyer his his defense attorney at the time where he he goes into how gacy got super drunk and came to his office and just admitted everything oh my god (laughs) you know and then he and then he's like but then and you know and so he talks about how they developed the they developed the insanity defense because this, because the lawyer legitimately thought that Gacy had like a, you know, like kind of like a seizure, a seizure dissociative disorder or something, you know, where he, the the way that he thought about the world and the way that he operated in the world was not healthy. And this guy was like, if he got help, I wonder if he could be maybe not productive, but, you know, it was just, it was an interesting look into why they had this defense. But towards yeah. the end of the towards the end of the book, he talks about how Gacy started using it as like, well, I didn't know what I was doing, so like I didn't do it, right? You know? And so over time, it morphed, and he and he, you know, even says in the book, he's like, well, I feel like we kind of got taken in by Gacy ourselves. Um, that and that point building to say, I think in many ways, still, not only do we think of, I think when people who are being com- uh, accused of a crime use the insanity defense first off we always assume that they're doing it in a way to uh skirt blame yeah but on top of that too in instances like charlottesville or anytime there's like a you know a a shooter or something when when people say well this person was was crazy what they mean by that and they only use it it seems when it's a white person who does it right it's, of course, it's, it's right. It's it's a way of again deflecting blame from them, right? Yeah. No, it's it's curious to me because on one hand, you know, like you you want to hold people accountable, and like I listen to too many true crime podcasts and stuff like that, and um, and and so like you know, on one hand, you're like, well, you know, we want whoever, whether or not the prosecution got it right, more often they get it wrong. Um, we want to hold them accountable, but on the other hand. 
man, it's hard being mentally ill. Like, yeah. some, I, I mean, you know, like, I don't, I, I mean, I have the type of illness where I, like, take too much blame for things, and I, you know, I, like, so, so I have, like, the, the opposite problem, but, you know, like, how do you, you know, how do you balance the fact that you want to be compassionate and you want to be able to help somebody who's ill with the fact that they're probably, or maybe not even a murderer or a rapist or some other horrible person. Yeah, I think, well, it, it comes down to this, it kind of comes down to this interesting conundrum we've set up for ourselves a little bit in the social sciences versus the fact of kind of how we deal justice out in this in this country, in this society. I mean, not just this country, throughout the, you know, right, the human world. world. Yeah. <laughs> um. We, we have this idea that crime can be – so in the episode that we did with Rumor Flies, we talked about the idea of a inductive versus a deductive method of predicting crime. And we said that the inductive method kind of seems to work better and that the inductive method there would be you you look at statistics. So you look at like a, a body of statistics and you say, well, based on this type of crime, it's probably whatever. this It, it, it is – not probably necessarily because that's when it that's when it leads you wrong. It's when it right. leads you astray. Right, you don't want to put on blinders. No, you don't want to put on blinders. But at the same time, in these in these cases where it is effective, it seems to be that it's this it's this use of statistics to predict, maybe not predict criminality, but rather to um, lead the investigation into different directions. Right to open up new possibilities yeah. you may not have seen. But yeah. the problem with that is. I mean, part of the problem with that is that our our statistics our statistics aren't very good, and they're not necessarily <laughs> indicative of anything, right? Right. But on top of that, as well, that supposes all kinds of different things about, you know. So now, when we talk about a criminal, we we don't talk about them being a person being born a criminal. We talk about them being born um, into a certain social setting. Or, exactly. That then leads yeah. them to to more likely become a criminal or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, well, you know, they were disadvantaged or they were, you know, whatever kind of label you want to put on it, I suppose. But that, that idea that criminality can be caused by social standing or economic fact or upbringing flies directly in the face of our justice system. That presupposes that you have the ability to make decisions for yourself completely freely. Yeah. Right. Like, what's the what's the cutoff? We have this arbitrary cutoff between adulthood and childhood, mm -hmm. where if they're a child, you know, if if it's a kid robbing, if it's a kid beating up someone at the playground, we think, well, maybe they're being abused at home or something. But if it's an adult who was abused at home beating up someone, we don't think, oh well, they had a horrible upbringing. We should be training them to be different. We think we should throw them in jail. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's an interesting point, and I think. Um... You know the the problem also with 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 the statistics, but also with when we're thinking about these things, is that it it already marginalizes people who are marginalized further. You know, yes. like like the people in this country who already are usually you know they're 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 already disadvantaged. Like, I'll, for example, along racial lines, of course. Like, of course, you know, people are already going due to statistics. People will like presuppose that they'll they'll you know go into criminality, but. And and then you know they might look at the like people who are um, who are incarcerated and be like oh see look like we mo most of the people who are incarcerated are indeed people of color 
Right. Therefore, but, they are more likely to be. Cr- yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. But, you know, and it's kind of like, but no, but our system is built that way. Yeah, it's and, not right. It's not taking into account the structural things that might exactly. cause that to be a more. Yeah, a higher representative piece for absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the really interesting parts that we talked about in the first part of this series is that when you statist- when you when you remove from the statistical analysis the um the fact of like you know uh being both an addict and also having suffering from a mental illness that's going untreated um so, you know and, and in many ways addiction is a mental illness yeah um when you when you suffer or when i suppose maybe that's not the right wording then i suppose what the wording should be is when you are both when you are self-medicating for a mental illness, you tend to then the, – the statistics then, if you remove from that – if you remove that fact from the equation, then it kind of levels off again to be like the average. You know what I mean? And, it, and it, then it becomes a question of, well, we don't really treat addicts or people with an addiction problem all that compassionately in this country. Right. We don't really do a lot to help them. So they're kind of being forced into situations where violence is more likely. You know, it, it, it just becomes a whole big – I mean, really, that's that's the problem with science. Just yeah. too many questions. Things should be simple. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Well, things are. I think it's especially complicated in the social sciences. Yes. You know, because because in a lab we can, depending on the discipline, we can try to reduce down until we have you know these very strict variables and you know claim that we're that we're being very precise and accurate. But you can't do that with humans. <laughs> like, no matter no, how exactly. you try, you can't do that with humans. Right. And, the th- and that's actually a really interesting part of the social sciences is trying to find trying to find cases where you didn't cause the situation to be as it is, but you can now study it. Yeah. Right. It kind of it kind of it kind of leads to some interesting some interesting situations, you know. So actually, that that leads us right into something we had wanted to talk about, which was. How do we actually model? So we talked a lot in the we talked we've talked a lot so far about, you know, mental health as kind of a and I, and I don't mean we as in like you and I right now. I mean, like the show generally, <laughs> right. I guess, the, you know, the all encompassing we <laughs> we've we've talked we about. Yeah, we've talked about this sense of mental health being both a social thing, a historic thing and like a physical illness. Yeah. Right? And kind of also how the way that other people see mental health might change the way that you seek treatment or how you feel about yourself. Yeah, but totally. An, but another really interesting part of it is how do we actually treat – how do we treat and learn about mental illness if – you know, one of the really interesting – so I, I always like to, to talk about this this case. And I, I – so there was a case where they had – uh, two individuals with a delusional disorder, I guess, or, or almost like almost like narcissism or grandiose personality or something. And so they believed that they believed that they were, um, I believe it was like either Napoleon or Jesus or something. And so then, as kind of an interesting study, they put them in like a group setting with each other, these two individuals, mm-hmm. and both of them de- both of them decided. Um, sp- simultaneously and on their own that the other guy was lying. Yeah. Right. Huh. <laughs> right. And so, and I, and I, so it's, it's one of those interesting situations with social sciences, but anyways, the, 
one interesting thing with mental health is that we really don't know all that much about why it's caused or how to treat it. Yeah. No, that's definitely true, especially like as as it is with most disciplines. As you learn more, the less you know. Yeah. Uh, so, um Absolutely. So we actually didn't we didn't say we we didn't say this at the beginning, which which that's my fault as the host. But Nassim um, has done in, has done uh, you know research uh, in a lab on mental health models in animals, and also just kind of brain brain stuff generally that I'm too I am too bad at biology to understand. Uh. <laughs> but but so so one way just to give the listeners a little bit of background. Mm-hmm. One way that we so first off, I guess we should talk about the the current state of mental health treatment. So. Right now, kind of what we do is we have a, a class of drugs that we have some idea about how they affect the brain's chemistry, and we just kind of try different mixtures of them for different things. So, And it's almost yeah. more like we don't know how to, say, for instance, turn on or turn off um, like obsessive-compulsive disorder, but we do know that if we treat different aspects of it like the anxiety or like the depression or like the you know whatever then we can have better it's a better time then or it's easier to treat with with therapy or with you know real like you know kind of what what i think most people think of as classical psychiatry yeah I mean, if you're the person that it works for, that's not, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like well, psychiatry that's... is completely, it's completely, let's try a bunch of things and see what sticks. Yes. And I, and I mean, it's part of, by nature of the way that we, like what we know about like mental illness, like you said, um, but it does, it sucks if, if you're one of those people that nothing sticks, <laughs> you know, where yeah. you're like, oh, well, I guess science doesn't know what to do with me. Hooray. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so there's one, there's one subcategory of OCD where you only have you only have obsessions you don't have compulsions and Dang. right right now yeah and so right now OCD treatment is very very centered on treating compulsive behavior yeah and then trying to treat the underlying obsessive thoughts um just through like again symptom mitigation you're trying to stop yeah. that person from like switching the light switch on and off or something yeah but but in reality, the obsessive thoughts or the, you know, what whatever that brain mechanism is, is not stopping. It's just maybe you're not seeing it out on the outside so often. Yeah. So, so I, I know, I know when I first started, when I first started, um, like my symptoms were really super, super, I guess, mental in the sense that like I would count in my head or I would kind of like rethink things over and over again to like Mm -hmm. analyze them from all sides or whatever. And so when I went, when I went to the first doctor I went to, to be like, Hey, I think like I'm spending a whole lot of time thinking about whatever, you know, you know, like I'm not getting a whole lot of work done. I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, Oh my God, I wonder if my cat's okay. Like you go, you know, when I went to the first doctor, she was just like, well, like, I don't know man like, like do you want to try a bunch of different drugs like i don't yeah. know what to tell you if you look and, in the dsm-5 a lot of there's like disorders that it's just like like may not present like any of these but yeah. still, maybe like, you know like like bipolar disorder has a, a section for that and you're like well that's not helpful yeah like okay, oh it can be anything then yeah. you know i always i always like to think about this my i, I had a kid well I, I had a kid my neighbor when we used to live in Boston, my neighbor, our apartment was like a hobbit hole almost. <laughs> and so it kind of like when you walked into our door, 
it would get like you sunk a foot into the ground because <laughs> of the way it was built back in like whatever the 1890s or whatever the hell they built this house. And so our living room would be like gra- like our window in the living room was almost ground level with my neighbor's backyard where his kids would play. Yeah. And so like we got not only did they get a full view of like whatever I was watching on TV. <laughs> And, like, you know, one of the kids would, like, sit in the window sometimes, and I'd turn around and be like, no! But I would also get to hear all, like, the the weird stuff that he would say. And so one time he, like, he came came home with his dad, and he had a balloon, and he was like, like, uh, he said, my balloon is either red or it isn't. And it was like, oh, so anything That sounds philosophical. Yeah, yeah. But I remember, like, Katie and I both looked at each other like, so everything, <laughs> like, like it, it can be any option. The balloon can be anything. Then that's great. That's really helpful, little kid. Oh uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, because there's there's so many like symptoms in children where it's just like oh whatever they're being kids, but they're like mental illness in kids is yeah. so underappreciated. So when my mom does a lot of work in this, she's a professor of child development, and it's something that like even as sometimes as young as infants like. There are things that you can see that you're like, oh, I've got to, like, I don't know, work on attachment <laughs> I, issues. i got to get on this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. You know, but, like, but, you know, so a lot of people write it off as, like, kids will be kids. And I'm sure that is that is true for, you know, like, some kids. But there's so many other kids that, like, they want help and they don't even know that they need help or that yeah. they want help. So, so. Th- so when I, I, I remember – I remember very distinctly, and this was actually part of why I I refused. I think this is part of why I personally took so long to get treatment at all, was that Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that I had done since I was a kid, all of a sudden doctors were like, nah, man, you shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like they like, um, like one of the things I did was, and again, so this is another important point we kind of wanted to go into, I guess, was that. A big part of all of these DSM five categories for what cons- what constitutes a mental health issue versus what doesn't is does is it debilitating to the person's life? Right. Like, does it cause them? Um, what does it cause them undue distress? So if you're and at for home, like two weeks or more, you know, they yeah, almost attack yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time too. Yeah, it's not. It's not. They're not. Um, they're not like when I was trying to get medicine to like help with with my anxiety, or whatever. I had to be like, no, you guys don't understand. This sucks. Like, I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. You know, they were like, well, you seem okay. And I'm like, just because I didn't come in and like, you know, just because I decided to shower today because I was like, I'm going to the doctor doesn't yeah. mean I was doing all that good uh, a week ago. You know? Yeah. People seem to think people. I think don't appreciate that. A lot of us who deal with mental illness, like we figure out how to put on the masks when yeah, things are good enough, you know, like, like, yeah, like whenever, if I have something to do, you know, and I have to leave the house, like, yeah, I definitely make sure I shower. But, you know, if I'm like in a bad depression slump and I have to be at home all day, like, you know, but, but people don't like, I, I'm, I, a lot of us, like people, people just wouldn't even, it wouldn't even cross their minds that we're yeah. like dealing with something like this. And it's like, well, I think most, a lot of people walk around, you know, dealing with some sort of mental illness that they, you know, either either treated or not treated, but we, d- but we think when we think of mental illness, we usually we either like p- pathologize it to the point that it's like, oh, you're a sociopath and you can like 
hide everything you do, which perpetuates stigma against people with personality disorders. Absolutely. Or we just assume, like, you know, we assume that you're, like, a total mess all the time. And, like, I've been a total mess, you know? Like, I, I, have, <laughs> been, I have been at that point, and it's not, that's not always what mental illness looks like. In no. fact, I think most of the time it doesn't look that way. Absolutely. I mean, I always, yeah, I always like to think, so there's that, um, there's that, the famous view of like Howard Hughes when he was really in the in the hardest slumps of his OCD based like paranoia I guess or whatever where he was like you know in a room um, peeing in jars and like you know really <laughs> like not touching stuff because of germs or whatever yeah but it's like that's the view we have not the view of like the famous aviator who developed all these amazing <laughs> things you know like he right, just exactly. wasn't he wasn't being treated like it's I don't know yeah and it's funny you know. The, a lot of the things that we diagnose too, they're they're on like the same spectrum. Yeah. You know, like like autism used to be considered a schizophrenic disorder, and mm-hmm. OCD is is sometimes considered an autistic disorder, and and so is ADHD. And and then really like I think the point of all that is that like thing like things overlap. Comorbidity is a, is like really important, and I don't know if at some point I. I don't know if at some point we're going to move towards being like, we're going to abolish these names and just try to work on symptoms. But on the other hand, it can be really empowering to be like, Oh, this is what I have. Like this thing that's causing me pain in some way. That's like people recognize someone out there will recognize that I'm in pain and they call it depression. They, they call it OCD. So I I have kind of mixed. I mean, on one hand, like treating the symptoms might be the like practical way to go. But on the other hand, I I hope it doesn't like remove our autonomy and our power. Yeah, I want. Yeah, I think it's a really. Yeah, it's an interesting problem because, like we were saying, we really don't have very good methods for. I mean, we have we have methods that are effective, but they're not effective for everyone. Yeah, a lot of it, and they is, take a long time. <laughs> they take a very long time to even get some semblance of you know, back to normalcy. I suppose. And yeah. And then on top of that too, and but even that, like back to, I mean, we we kind of skimmed over the ableist language thing, but even that sense of like back to normalcy, like what right. what is normal? You know what I right. mean? It's not, you know, I guess I, I guess back to functioning, back to happy, back to mm-hmm. I don't know, but I think a big part of that actually will be how do we start to develop these? How do we do we get better at? diagnosing and understanding these things. And that actually comes, comes back to where we almost got to, (laughs) which is um, actually how do we study psychiatric disorders? If we can't, how do we study anything in biology? I suppose, but especially with psychiatric disorders where, so for those listening, a lot of our, a lot of our research in biology, there's, there's this thing. I, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's, it's almost like the chain of, the chain of research animals, I suppose, or the chain of biological research. And what the way it goes is... Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions, Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, 
all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. You try to do research in such a way, in researching this at these levels and at these certain things, does require at some point either a cell or a uh, an animal or a, an insect or something. And so you try to, there's kind of like a, almost a hierarchy, I guess, where we consider cells to not have um, rights, really. We then, you know, I mean, it's actually an interesting question. There was a, there, I remember when I was in undergrad in philosophy, there was a, well, let's, okay, let's, let's start, let's finish this thought and then I will go on the tangent. Okay. So we kind of start at the level where we don't think of, of collections of cells really as having, um, the same rights as say a zebrafish, which would be our next mm-hmm. our next move up, or a, a zebrafish actually is kind of high up the chain. But we'd go from like yeah, cells like, to to worms, we go from like bacteria cells flies. to human cells, right? To worms, to fruit flies, to, um, to zebrafish, to zebrafish, then to you know, Mice. then going up. And so the at the very top of that list is humans, and then right below them are non-human primates, and then mm-hmm. you know, and in many ways it's kind of an, it's kind of like we, it's almost like the cuteness. There's like a cuteness factor that comes in where it's like, you know, you, you wouldn't test on like Bambi, but you might test on like a feral pig, even though the feral pig might be closer to us. Like, yeah, you know, but, yeah. but we, so we, they're we not tried, usually feral though. Right. They're not usually feral. They're usually pretty well behaved, but yeah. you know, we're trying, we're, I guess it's sort of the sense of like, okay, well, we need, we need to do these tests because there's no other way to know if our treatments will work on humans or even will be likely to work on humans without either unleashing them on humans somehow, which has its own moral and ethical questions. Um, so we try to like, we try to, it's, it's actually really, uh, my, this is what my, my wife was working in previously was trying to minimize, um, trying to minimize the ethical hazards, I suppose, with animal testing. Right. Did she so, work with Iacook? Um, so she was the, she didn't work at Iocook, but that would be like her dream job, or it would have been. Oh. I don't know. I don't know what her dream job would be now. She was working. I mean, because now she's like in vet school, so it's gotten much more. Th- things have opened up considerably, I suppose. Man, but, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I know. So she, uh, what she was doing was she worked with a team that did non-human primate research at MGH. And so okay. on top of that, then and they're then one she- of the few centers left for for like the listeners. There's a movement with. Um, with like national funding to not fund non yes. non-human primate labs and to basically try to shut those labs down with time such that we're no longer doing any experiments with non-human primates yeah. which so, is both like a wonderful thing but also a sad thing for research it's, yeah it's again it's it's that trade-off right and yeah. so what her what her job was basically was um was ensuring that the animals were treated I mean, she, she basically worked with a team of vets and vet techs that took care of the animals, ensured yeah. that they were that they were um, minimum, you know, healthy, happy. Um, you know, like a big part of her job was making toys and things for the animals to play with. No. Yeah, <laughs> but it's still like it's still a very, 
you know, I mean, she then moved on to doing like HIV AIDS research. Um, again, though, in an animal model, like, yeah, I don't think people realize, I suppose, how much of our biology has to happen through animals. Yeah, I mean, or it does. I mean, it has to happen. It does happen through animals right now. I don't know if it has to in the future, but it does currently. Yeah, if you want to get something approved by the FDA, you have to show preclinical models first. Yes. And usually those preclinical models have to be rodents before they'll let you on to phase one trial. So, um, so yeah, I mean, like any any modern, certainly like any modern treatment that like comes onto the market has gone through years and years and years of testing in animals, which does, you know, present its own like ethical, ethical quandary. Right, um, but, it, but it also means then that I mean, you know, we're not, like, shooting stuff into humans and then right. being like, I wonder what'll happen. Yeah, no, so you know? people people who are, you know, they protest for animal rights. There's a couple of things to think about. One is that if we want to do biomedical research, we have to use animal models. Two... I've never so I worked I worked with animals for like six years. That was my that was my work. That was what I was going to do my PhD before I left. Um, and I've never met a single animal researcher who ever abused the animals. No. Like we I mentioned we mentioned Iacook earlier. They're the oh, let's see institutional uh, academic use for care committee oh whatever they're they're basically like the ethical the people like that vet your research before you even like order an animal and those that 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 can take months like when i when i was working as a tech before i started my phd program i had to wait four months with a protocol that i had already had been approved at another university like we showed the approval because they like wanted to you know they were like oh why are you using like foam in this is a complicated model but like you know like why are you doing it's like for one question and they only meet like once a month and but like every single thing that you do is vetted by Iacook and they are stringent I mean there's yeah. like things that you're like this is not going to hurt the animal but they like deeply deeply care about everything that you do so I've I've never met an animal researcher who was just like yeah fuck these animals like no yeah I'm allowed to swear on this podcast <laughs> no <laughs> you know, it's like... fine you are <laughs> shit yeah you're fine um yeah I think it's I think it's a really important point i mean you know it's yeah it's one of those things and it also becomes a trade-off between like you know um we probably shouldn't be testing viagra on (laughs) animals because like who gives a shit you know what i mean yeah but we probably should be trying to find a cure for malaria yeah you know like the latest cancer drug yeah i know the side effects that stuff's probably important but you know (laughs) i can i can see not you know not that that's yeah anyways so so one interesting question, though, that comes from that is you did research on animal models of psychiatric disorders. So how, do you, how does that happen? How does that work? So the, the way that it works is that you never – and anyone, any researcher that tells you they're modeling the whole disorder is full of shit. Yeah. You never try to model the whole disorder. One, because there's so much about the disorder we don't know. Two, because it varies across individuals. And three, because that's hard. So what you do is you model symptoms, and you say this is an OCD model, or these are depression-like symptoms. And there's tests that we've um, created and validated – that basically predict the human condition. So um, the the most like common example that I usually give is how we model depressive-like behavior. So if you take a rat and you put it in a bucket of water where it's it's like it's not cold or anything like that, it's just like they're basically paddling. 
you can see like at what point the rat stops paddling and gives up and just floats there. And that's like a learned helplessness sort of paradigm. And if you give that rat, you know, like antidepressants and wait two weeks and then look, the rat will like increase how much time it spends swimming and decrease how much time it spends floating. So like a test like that, we say like, okay, this, this, because we know that the drug works as an antidepressant effect in humans, we can predict what will happen in humans by using this in animals. So there's, mm. you know, there's like all these different paradigms that test, you know, a thousand different things that you, after, you know, depending on what manipulation you do to the animal, you then like put them through. Um, and they're not like, I make, I made it like, they're not like, like demonic tests or anything like that. Like what, <laughs> you know, like yeah. one, of the, one of the tests that I ran from memory was like, I put like a Kong dog toy and this... <laughs> This other dog toy that looked like a dildo, and my PI wouldn't let go of it because she thought it was so funny. And I had to, like, I made them, like, I put them in there, and I was just like, explore the box, explore these objects, you know? And, and so it's not like these tests aren't like, they, they don't have to be like super like painful. I mean, there certainly are tests that use um, like shocks, for instance, but, you know, like, there are plenty of tests that never harm an animal. And I want to make that clear so yeah. that we don't get uh, no, angry absolutely, emails. Absolutely. And again, <laughs> So it's actually interesting. One of the one of the studies that was going on at, at uh, where Katie worked was they basically would track the eye. They would track so they'd put a uh, a rhesus macaque, I think, mm-hmm. in a like basically in front of a Nintendo. Like 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 uh, <laughs> there's a lot of video games for not dude. It's so. like it's pretty. So um so again like. Obviously, we should be trying to limit the use of animals because that's, you know, ethical questions. we got all kinds yeah. of ethical questions here. But this, like, like um, there's there's a whole, like, area where they just have the retired um, non-human primates. Yeah. Because, like, at, the, at a certain level, like, you can't, you can't release them back into the wild necessarily. Right. You can't, like, they just have to live and you got to take care of them, right? And so they eat Jello and they watch SpongeBob all day. <laughs> My kind of life. You know what I mean? Like, this guy's job is playing video games. He gets to hang out in a hammock all day. Like, it sounds right. not that bad. Yeah. But, uh, but so the, the test, what the test was basically was um, trying to, like, almost trying to test i guess memory or something but it was basically like they would what they would do is they had a camera on top of the pc and so they could track the eyeball movements Mm -hmm. and so they were like seeing it pick uh, choices and if it chose the right you know the right combination or something it would get a treat yeah and so it was like okay well if if then it it has this this medication will it um will it learn quicker or will it you know have better memory or something like that and so yeah you know, so there's there are a lot of a lot of a lot of work has gone into making, I suppose, what we would consider non-intrusive testing. You know, yeah, like like yeah, not having to like shock the brain or something. But so one thing that I, I find really fascinating is, so, so a big part of treating even now treating um, like medication in humans for psychiatric disorders, it's like, you know, I I know for like two and a half years I checked in with my psychiatrist. I had a, I had a specific psychiatrist just for this one medicine I'm on to like, tr- you know, meet up with him and be like, yeah, he's like, how you feeling? Like, you, you know, you, you've been sleeping more, sleeping less. You feel like you're eating more, eating less, whatever, like a whole rundown of things. And it, it was only until like, you know, uh, right before I moved where he was like, well, I think you're probably stable on this. Like you're probably okay. Yeah. But we should check back in like in three years. <laughs> and, and, if, and if you've like, I don't know, 
have any drastic changes, you should just let me know in the meantime. <laughs> you know, and so I, I and I saw it. So I guess what I'm trying to bumble into is the idea that it's a lot of these things are psyche are literally psychiatric. It's like, how do you envision something in your mind or how do you, you know, what is your, what is your brain telling you in, in yeah. the sense of like a thought or a vision or, or a flash or something? Right? Yeah. And sometimes you think those like even, even so I've, I've been, uh, I've been on, on antidepressants, I think for seven years, but still like, I'm like, oh, you know, may- maybe this thing that, like, I'm thinking or this thing that I'm feeling, like, maybe I'm not supposed to be feeling that. Like, even if you've been treated for a long time, yeah. there are things you'll normalize, which, like, you know, other people who aren't on this med, like, might not feel that way. And so maybe you can get better. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's well, something better. Well, so what what I was actually thinking was, is those those aspects of it can never, or, like, so you mentioned the, the rat who seemed to kind of uh, lose interest or give up in terms of, like, staying, I guess, afloat or not wet or something. Yeah. So I wonder in the same – like, that, though, in an animal does not have any – how do you know that you're not just treating then uh, – you're like, <laughs> this medicine is just, like, because it's coated in sugar or something. It's just make, giving them a little <laughs> bit more – strength or energy. We d- you know I, mean, I mean in in terms of animals we actually do test for that and um a lot of times what the test is locomotion so it's like oh well did the animal just move more than before because like hello you know then of course you're going to have different results. So so we yeah. do like a a thorough research study will test for for confounding factors. Okay. But you know sometimes you have to think like you know like are we treating any like we can't we we can't know whether or not animals have a theory of mind you know like we can't know whether yeah. like what the rat is thinking and like whether the treatment we did has affected the rat in a cognitive way that's not measurable by memory and are we treating that or not like there's that's like we can't know that and in Absolutely. humans we can only kind of know that because we like we everything is so subjective and you know we don't have like a good we, there are there are some researchers trying to trying to develop this, but we like don't have like an fMRI that we can look at and be like, oh oh my god, like this person is totally having these symptoms right now because of this flare up and you know right, the nucleus right, right. like you know we we don't have those and I forgot what my point was so <laughs> <laughs> wonderful so no I yeah. I think I think what we were both uh, talking about was the idea that we don't have very good. Because we okay, let me try to rephrase this in a really interesting way. <laughs> because we don't have very good data coming into our models, like a okay, this brain, this brain state, this part of the brain lighting up means that this is occurring. Because we don't have that even for humans yet, it gets even more murky for animals. And so when we treat, yeah. when we treat these animals, when we treat these disorders with animal models. Not only is it very, um, not only is it very affected by or affected by, you know, confounding factors, but it also becomes a question of how does that actually translate to a human yeah. disorder where there is a sense of of self, where there is a consciousness. Yeah. So you know, a good that's like a really maybe we'll start selling that as a bumper sticker in the shop <laughs> store. You know, yeah, that whole <laughs> that whole super long. Well, maybe we'll sell it as a blanket or something. Perfect. But yeah, it's really good. So, 
So one one really interesting thing that I thought um, you had mentioned was that you had uh, you had seen eating disorders in animal models. Yeah, that so was how- that was so interesting. So I did that when I was an undergrad. And my one of the grad students in my lab like developed this model specifically of anorexia. And what she did was that she this is where like any animal rights people are gonna get really upset. Um, she basically tested like if you food deprive a mouse, will it starve itself to death? And she found that no, like even like eventually their weight flatlines into something and they keep it stable. And she's like, Okay, well if I place a running wheel into the into the cage, will it run itself to death? And she's like, No, they, they like regulate that. But if you limit the food intake and you give an animal a running wheel, mice will literally run themselves to death. And she found that this was especially strong in female mice. And this is not an episode on gender, because I could go on about that. But anyway, um and and so like for so at the time I was going through the worst of my eating disorder and hearing like oh my god there's like a biological basis for this was like the most validating thing I could think of like one thing that I desperately miss about neuroscience is that like how much validation it can provide people but anyway that's that's a side note so so basically what she did was that she created this model and then she would try she was trying to figure out like what areas in the brain might be affected or like what drugs can she use for treating and um the most effective drug, I think, if I remember correctly, was an atypical antipsychotic. So, like, who would think, like, oh, you have anorexia? Let me give you this antipsychotic. Like, right. they're nobody's going to think to do that. No, <laughs> they're, like, completely on the other side of the of most people's thinking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, yeah, that's fascinating. So, cause, so, the reason why I found this so interesting, and I think you, you started kind of touching on it, is the idea that eating disorders, when they're... There's when they're sort of shown in the popular culture, it's almost always like it's one of the it's one of those it's one of those mental health things that I think people still don't really consider to be um, like a sickness. Yeah, right. Like people think it's just vanity or it's just whatever. Oh but man, it's, it's the but worst. It's very <laughs> serious. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's one of the most like. It's it's easily one of the hardest to overcome and one of the most dangerous. You know? Yeah. And so yeah. it's like, you know, like I. Yeah. So and and the fact that it is present in animals is extremely interesting. So. So. So wait. So that I'm trying to get my I'm trying to wrap my head around this. You just blew my mind. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but but like hearing that um, was yeah, like I said, it was like really validating because I was like, oh, man, like the fact that I can't control like that I'm starving myself to some degree, like, wow, there's a biological basis for that. There's like something yeah. in my brain that's, that's like encouraging me to do that. And there's well, actually a lot of, a lot of overlap between anorexia and OCD in those, in those senses. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. You know, so, and, and, and I found that comforting. Maybe not everyone will find that comforting. I found that comforting. Well, I think, I think from a, I think from a, it's almost like you give your enemy a face. Do you know what I mean? Like almost yeah. it's kind of a it's kind of a weird like Conan the Barbarian way to put it, but <laughs> kind of, you know, um yeah, like you you're giving this thing a name and you're giving it like the fact that you can measure it means you can treat it. Yeah. You know? And so I think for for um maybe we're just like two nerds. And so we're, you know, so I mean, like, we are, Chris. So I like, know, I know, but you know what I mean? Like, if maybe it's just that uh, because that, like, the measuring of stuff, like, I find that very comforting, the sense that, like, 
not comforting, I suppose. Like I don't I don't go to sleep with like a ruler next to me, like, oh ruler. <laughs> oh, oh, two centimeters. I love you, you know. But um but this sense that this sense that if it's something that science can at least understand partially, then maybe there's hope for a treatment that and and that it's not it's not your fault. You know what right. I mean too? Yes. It, it kind of it kind of makes it like, well, no, I'm just I'm just sick. You know, it's not I'm not getting over something or whatever. But then to link this back to the insanity plea, you know, like <laughs> when do we draw the line? Like do we yes. do we draw that line? Well, it, it, yeah, it becomes <laughs> no, I mean it's it is it's extremely it's extremely complicated. So, uh so we kind of so we kind of touched on this too, but it's really important I think to kind of keep keep putting it out there for people to hear. You know, the our idea of what is a, is or isn't a mental health disorder has changed even so much in the last 10 to 5 years. Yeah, totally. That it's it's astounding, you know, and it, and it it just kind of brings it all back to like we don't really know all that much. We don't really know how to treat these things and we're kind of trying to work it out as we go. You know, we're kind of making things up as we <laughs> as, totally. we, uh, as we try. And so, Which a lot of scientists find frustrating. I mean, we know the limitations of our field and like we're trying like like yeah. world top like amazing researchers like oh like why <laughs> why yeah. don't we know this yet you know no it is it's, <laughs> it's one of the it's one of the challenges of all I think you know it's always a really funny uh, always a really funny argument to get into when I remember when I was in undergrad we used to do these uh, the philosophy department had like a really cool students led kind of, I guess, talking, kind of like a seminar series almost called the Socratic Society. And so what we used to do was we used to come up with, like, topics and then argue about them all together. Yeah. And so invariably it would end up with, like, me arguing against everyone else because I was, like, <laughs> I was like one of, of – well, actually, it's really interesting. Our philosophy department had a lot of scientists in it. Um, interesting. But, yeah, but maybe not so many that were like as opinionated or loud as I was, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is a, a past I'm sorry, Socratic Society members. But so the I, I remember we had one where or we always I always seem to get in, into it with one with one of uh, a guy who I ended up, you know, considering a friend. Um because he thought that the social sciences weren't a science. Man, my abusive ex thought the same thing, and that's why I switched to biology from psychology. So <laughs> it's common. <laughs> it's like it's like a well. It's such a it's such a it's such a it's such it's like a crass is is. oversimplification. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's it's it by that standard, a whole lot of chemistry isn't a science either. And like you know, it all it all comes down to this thing where this idea of like a cascading uh, reduction in the sciences, yeah. but. There's but, that XKCD comic with um, where like math is on one end and like oh, sociology yeah. on the other. <laughs> yeah, 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 math it's is all, like way over. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like uh, it, the 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 comic for people that haven't seen it. It's like the sociologist at the end. He's like, well, uh, he's like, I'm a sociologist, and then uh, psychologist is like, well, sociologist applied psychology, and then psychologist applied neurobiology, and then you know, on and on and on and on uh, until finally you get a physicist, and he's like. Yeah, well, that's all just applied physics. And then, like, 20 panels later, you have a mathematician who's like, ha-ha! <laughs> you know, because it's all math. It's all math. Um, so, one, okay. so one part of that whole idea is 
this sense that men so, so criminality itself used to be considered a mental health disorder. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like not not that long ago. <laughs> It was considered to be, like, almost a biological or a learned, like, a Pavlovian conditioning almost kind of thing. You know, I mean, if you look back at, like, the history of... Because, again, like, I also listen to true crime stuff way too much, and I'm, I'm way, way too into the history of, like, serial killers and stuff. <laughs> um, the If you look back at, like, the history of American serial killers, you get to a point where they're, like, almost all of them were in these, like boys reformatory schools where they were like abused severely for months and months and months because the the priest or whoever that ran it was like well you're bad and we're gonna beat the bad out of you you know and like that was the standard thing and then in the like in like the 1920s to like the 1950s we were like where did all these serial killers come from (laughs) and it's like maybe you shouldn't have been beating kids at school for like (laughs) dropping the chalk and stuff you know yeah but it's this idea of not that everyone who's abused develops you know turns into a serial killer but abuse has serious side effects people so don't do it yeah no not at all it's just it just becomes a thing of like the law of large numbers, yeah. I guess. You know, like there's so you're creating a system where it becomes so commonplace that of course, even if it's point oh one percent, if that's point oh one percent of a million people, right? You've got a lot of like you know dangerous people out there, you know, yeah. um, or just you know whatever. But the this idea that it it does change over time and the way that we look at it changes is really important, and it's something that. You know, if we think today, you know, what we think today is not going to be what we think tomorrow. I yeah, mean, just, absolutely. Just look at, you know, I mean, I always think it's really funny. I always joke with my mom um, that, like, she, my mom was, like, a big, not a hippie per se. My mom was, like, my mom really wanted to be a hippie, I think. And <laughs> my mom just became, like, Disco Dora. Like, like my, mom, my mom was, like, I really like this whole hippie thing. And then she was, like, you know dance boom (laughs) right like that's what happened to my mom and so uh but like a lot of the views even that like the hippies espouse today it's people that now are like considered super uh super conservative in their views you know yeah so it's a really interesting it's a really interesting change and it's just something i think we need to keep it and bring it home i think people need to realize that these things are social a lot of things that we think of as being biological or natural or whatever are actually just social things. Right. Exactly. Where, you know, if we ever do like... an episode on gender and sex, man, I got you covered. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know we really have to. So it's funny. I was trying to think of, I was trying to think of, so Halloween's right around the corner. And so we were trying to think not of really fast enough. It's not here uh, yet. I know. I wish I have, I have to put, I have to put a photo on once I like clean this area of my house out, our house is like always kind of subtly decked out for Halloween. Yeah, so like we have like a lot of skulls and stuff hanging around. And, like we have a lot of we have a lot of uh, like etchings from Dante's Inferno and like purgatory. You know, <laughs> like we have just a lot of like kind of creepy stuff in our house generally. Yeah. And then I also have in um in the closet here where I keep all my guitars and junk and whatever. We also have like a, a shrine to Halloween basically. 
And I'm just, I'm waiting <laughs> for like amazing. the first, the first leaf to change. And I'm going to be like, Oh, it's time. <laughs> and I'll just take it all out. But, um, so w- one thing actually really quick before, before we end this, cause we're, we're, we're encroaching here on an hour, which is really time flies when you're talking to a really smart person. Like so you. that's cool. No, like <laughs> you. So we're not um, going to do this again. It's fine. No, we're not going to do this again. Uh, in one thing we kind of, it's actually a tangent that I didn't think to bring up until we already were in the midst of it, but I think it's really interesting. So we talked a lot about animal models, right? Mm-hmm. And actually you're the, you're, you're a really good person to talk about this with because you worked with them and you, you know, you know a lot and everything. One really cool thing that came up when I was in undergrad, like I said, was an idea that um, it was a, so it was a group of bioethicists that got together in Sweden and they decided that uh, plants used in research also had rights, also had moral standing, right? Yeah. And so the, the argument was that it ended up becoming this thing where they were like, if you can take away the reproductive abilities of a plant, then you are you are intrinsically hurting them and, and you're taking away um, their, I, th- I can't remember the exact way that they phrased it. I think it was, I think it was something like, um, it was something like you, an or- you should not stop an organism from doing, I don't want to say like their prime directive, but like their prime directive, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, yeah. But like, like how sh- far do you take that argument? Yeah. No, I think, I think that's a really interesting question, right? Like, um, where, like, if we look at it from a utilitarian standpoint, right? It's like, if we could save a million human beings or one bunny rabbit, right? What do you pick, right? Yeah. And, it, and at some point, it becomes like a, an impossible uh, calculation, right? Right. But with plants, we don't really think of them as having rights per se, right? Like, when I mean, we walk, we pick grass all the you know i pick yeah. grass to like whatever just to smell it you know what i mean like yeah that would be weird if i was like i don't know <laughs> i don't want to get really weird here like ripping the heads off of cows or something to be like mm, smells great you know but like it's kind, i mean yeah but it's kind of you know like i i just find it really bioethics is a fascinating field yeah and there's a lot of really interesting questions we get to. And then on top of it, like if we're, if we want to get really weird here, it also brings into question, like, so I seem to always end up with each episode, no matter who I'm talking to, we end up talking about aliens. Cause that's kind of like, you know, the that's thing. like how the show started though. That right? is kind yeah. of how the show started. So yeah. it's fine. So, um, like you have these people that say that they've been abducted or whatever. Right. Or that yeah. they've, um, Man, we are off topic, but it's we fine. Are. <laughs> it's fine. You know, like it, it, it brings in a question, this whole idea of like, if you've developed up, if you've developed up to the point that you can travel the stars, don't you think then that you would have developed? I mean, I think that's probably part of our, like part of a kind of Marie always says like a colonial view of things, but almost like we expect that the more you develop technologically, the more you'll develop ethically. Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's a thing, though. I, I yeah, almost no, think like no. it's the other way. Really? So you, th- yeah. you think you think that you think when 
Hmm. So explain. I just feel like humans are assholes. I mean, like we're just like <laughs> as a species, like the more that we learn, I feel like the more that we're we take from everything else. I mean, just like just like I don't know. You did your PhD in climate change, right? Like we've we've learned so much about like we've built these amazing technology. And like, don't don't get me wrong. Like I like being a human and all, but like we build these things and we search for more and more, but we never we're never really satisfied. Which you know, on one hand, people are like, "Quest for knowledge. This is awesome." Like that's the scientist mantra. But you know, since everything is ultimately driven by money in today's society, I should say, I don't know, like maybe in fifty years when when the zombies come, like, and won't be the case. It'll be driven by brains. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, I just, I just feel like, like, shit, it was people who came and like caused the genocide of the indigenous Americans, you know? And like, if we had, if, if, if like the Europeans had a certain technology, like then that they, that they didn't like, they would have done it anyway. So I just feel like the more like, Oh, at some point, I, I like at some point we're gonna try to go out into space and colonize different you know th- different planets and and I, I mean I think that it's unrealistic to say that there isn't life somewhere out there so you know like but you but you almost you almost think so actually kind of what I, where I was getting was so I'm looking at this as like benevolent space brothers where it's like if they've or I'm not really looking at it this way but this would be the argument that if they've gotten out here now, does it make sense that they would be testing on humans if they know that we are conscious? Right? Yeah. That's, that's kind of where I was going. But what you're saying is actually they probably got there where they are by not giving a shit. <laughs> if other things right. were conscious I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of assuming that like any organism that's out in space has the same kind of morality system that right. We would, do. would even need to. Yeah. yeah. And, and then you like, then there's just like I, I don't even know how to think about you know like what does it mean for something to not have like it's one thing when you think about like morality across cultures you know like I come from a culture where morality means something very specific but like you can think about that but like what if morality isn't like a isn't that framework at all in these things in which case like shit <laughs> you know yeah. everything yeah absolutely moot. no I mean I think that's like that's one argument that I always see is if the if um if 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 aliens aren't actually biological anymore what if they are consciousness uploaded to a computer yeah. or consciousness uploaded to a robotic body then for them questions of physical pain or you know all of that uh, are meaningless yeah. right so um so yeah it wouldn't matter if they're whatever coming to earth and ripping things apart because <laughs> whatever like for them you can always just weld it back together you know right. whatever, however they do it in space um yeah i just you know it's a, it's a really interesting question and that's actually yeah i think that's probably a good people are assholes yeah that's 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 the conclusion <laughs> that's the conclusion cool people are assholes yeah that's a good one all right so that'll be uh that'll probably be the end um of the se- that section now we'll say our goodbyes Okay. <laughs> on the air um this is gonna be an awesome episode i'm like super excited about this i can't wait to listen back i mean like most people i don't like the sound of my own voice but i'm really excited to be like oh there's this point i could have added right there <laughs> okay <laughs> so. Com- completely honest you sound really good like your mic is really really high quality oh, i don't know what kind of mic you're using but it sounds awesome i and, gotta uh, escape 
And yeah, know. no, hey, I mean, listen, you you got a good voice for podcasting. If you ever decide to do Thanks. one, we'll promote the hell out of it. I mean, yeah, you know, actually, I'm real. a I'm a I'm a gaming editor for a website, and we're we're like thinking about doing a gaming podcast, but I don't know what we're gonna. Ah, oh, so. that'd be awesome. <laughs> I just did like, I just did. Uh, I just had. Um, I was on Zang This, which is like another show that we're kind of friendly with, and they let me ramble for like an hour and a half about the Elder Scrolls universe. Which nice. was cool. I was like, oh, all you've played is Skyrim, huh? <laughs> Let's talk about how the planets are all actually, you know, all the realms of oblivion are planets. And nerd is a firmament. And, yeah, I feel I like I need to put you out. in a room with Gabe because he, like, abhors Elder Scrolls. He's like, no, like, this is this is not fun. Like, he's not about oh. it. I haven't played them, but, um, yeah, he probably. You guys are probably so fun. fun. Be great. <laughs> No! <laughs> oh my goodness. All right, we're going to have to get into this some other time. There's not enough time in the next couple of days for me to talk about how fun they are. <laughs> um, cool. All right. Um, I actually want to pull up like your actual websites and stuff so I can say them. Um, oh, okay. So it's nasimrights.com. Like... It's really simple. Oh, that is really simple. God, it's just simple <laughs> websites. I'm just trying to keep them simple. Phenomenal. <laughs> cool. Okay. So, let's do this. Um, let's do all right. This. Let's let us begin. So, uh, all right. Well, listeners, that is it for this week's episode. I have been joined by the wonderful Nassim Jamnia. Did I said your name wrong. Jamnia. Yeah. Jamnia. Ah, did I say it wrong in the beginning, too? No, you didn't. It's Jamnia. You said yes! it right in the beginning. <laughs> ah, this is one of those things. So, today, today, we're sitting down to dinner. I'm, I'm I'm looking across at my wife. She's like, "What did I say? I said something stupid. I said spear. I said okay. I was like, she's drinking this like weird Whole Foods like apple pineapple mint juice thing, and I was like, oh, I didn't know I didn't know you'd like that because you don't like spearmint. <laughs> and Katie's like, Katie's like, what did you say? Like dead serious like stare. I was like, spearmint. And she's like, spearmint. <laughs> oh, I can't say things. And like I knew, and the thing is, this is what just happened with this too. In my head, I'm like, it's spearmint. But then I'm like, no, wait, I'm wrong. It's probably the other way I didn't think. So that's good. Man, you don't even have like being foreign as an excuse for that. I use I use the cop no. out that English wasn't my first language, even though I learned it when I was five. You know, like, I'm like, oh, I don't I don't know how to pronounce things. I, I'm I'm not what's what's an American? I what right. <laughs> what? That's actually so. Uh, where are you from originally? Uh, my parents were both born in Iran. I was oh, okay. I was born in Chicago, but yeah, I'm Iranian. Okay, but so okay, awesome. Yeah, I know. Like, so it's funny. I hang out with a. 70 year old Iranian professor that we're like buddies. We're like, we're like totally best friends. And I like to call him my best friend. He's probably like, yeah, I know Chris. Okay. We're, we're friendly. Yeah, um, he's, he's a guy. Yeah. He's a guy. That's cool. Oh, that's really cool. All right. Um, nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, you know, my, my, my mom's from Italy and my dad's from Canada. So, you know, not really, not really, the Italy side, maybe there's a little bit of immigrant stuff there, but Canada, my dad's like, you call these chicken tenders? You know what I mean? Like, it's basically all the same. All right. Um, so, Jamnia. 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 Okay. I'm going to do it really quick. All right, listeners. That is it for this week's episode. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell. I have been joined by the wonderful Nassim Jamnia. Nassim, thank you so much for coming on the air with me. 
Thanks for having me. Thank you fun. for being a member of the Igor. That's such such good times. I love it. And now I have to Wonderful. go do some research for some episodes. That's okay. I'm actually I'm like gonna I, I meant to go on there tonight and be like I have a bunch of really good scary stuff for Halloween. And so Halloween. all like the sciencey stuff we were thinking of doing, it keeps <laughs> it keeps getting pushed back. We have like listeners, just to give you a heads up, we have like three episodes fully researched out. That I just, like, haven't recorded yet because I keep thinking of scarier, cooler things. So it's pretty rough. They could go out for the patrons. It could go out for the patrons. Don't say that. No, it could. It absolutely should, actually. So I mean, then I'm eventually actually... everyone else would get them. But That's true. Suggestion. That's true. So actually, we're actually, I'm actually staring right now at a camcorder that we bought um, a while ago, but I just haven't used yet. But I'm hoping to start actually doing like science videos too for people. Oh yeah! So awesome. we'll see if those happen. And uh, and yeah, patrons, you are actually going to get a pretty sweet episode on thermodynamics coming out soon. Um, once I find a good time and place to teach Marie <laughs> thermodynamics. <laughs> and so the way what we think we're gonna do is we're gonna cross. We're gonna go back and forth where I'll teach Marie something of my choosing, and then she'll pick something. She'll teach me something of her choosing. Yeah. So it's gonna be good. It's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be weird. <laughs> it's gonna That's be weird. Usually, what the show is. <laughs> That's true, which is fine. Anyways, uh, Nasim, people can find you at NasimWrites.com. Yep. And that has all your stuff on there. Everything. Um, please support Nasim. Um, her, you know, writings, everything, awesome stuff. Thanks. And uh, and thank you so much, Nasim. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a total blast. I want to come was... back. A total blast. We're definitely going to have to have you come back. It's going to be phenomenal. Yes. All right, cool. Yes. Good night, and thank you again so much for listening. Bye. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.